0: This is week four, and uh, I'm not sure if you're picking them up on the video or not. It helps just to kind of get some lingo down, some terminology down. This is what we've looked at so far. Reconnect. Give me a reconnect. Come uh, on, come on, come on. Stand up, stand up, uh, everyone up. Shout it out. Reconnect. Reignite. 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 All right, you good so far? We feeling good? Restart. Re- All right, and today is Reaffirm. Give me a Reaffirm. Beautiful, you can take a seat. Guys, I love you. I appreciate you humoring me on that, all right? Let me describe to you what it means, taken right from our documents, our discipleship documents here at Fellowship of Faith. You'll find it on the screen. Here's what we say We desire to conform our lives to the teachings of Jesus, it's what we're doing here. We see something in Jesus that is fundamentally different. Who he says God is, how he identifies himself, what's right and what's wrong, the fiber of the universe, the inner workings of our very being and so much more. We gather in a place like this on Sunday because we think he's got it right. And not only do we think that he's got it right, we think he literally embodies it himself. So we desire to conform our lives to that, not just to what he says, but to who he is. And we say we do that by clinging to the orthodox historic Christian faith. Ain't that a mouthful? Which basically means this. For the past 2,000 years, there have been different Christians living in different communities in different geographical and cultural locales. Some gather in large gatherings, some gather in small gatherings. They speak different languages. They gather around different, shall we say, emphases and styles and things of that nature. But there is a stream uniting them all, a commonality of faith, a commonality of belief that we simply call the historic Orthodox Christian faith, that which was handed down by the apostles who walked with Jesus and embedded into their followers after them and illuminated, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, guided through scripture among all things to this very day. And so we say we hold the Bible to be inspired by God, not just a dusty history book, not just a a collection of poems and sentimental feelings, but something alive, something active, something that you know, when you read it, or when you hear it, what we believe is like—it's it's like God's actually speaking to you. You might hear it on a different voice. You might see it through your own eyes, but God, the Spirit is lacing the very words, and the very words themselves have been motivated by God. And because of that, we want to do what God says. I mean, He's God, right? He's probably got a good bead. On things. And so here at FOF, when we read the Bible, it's not just to get information, but the idea of transformation, that we want to actually conform our lives to it, that it will govern what we do and believe. Now, we're a Lutheran church. A lot of people are surprised to figure that out, and a lot of people don't even believe it, but we are, and unashamedly so. And there were these Lutheran people, believers. There was Martin, and there was the other Martin, and there was John, and there was other ones too. You don't need their last names because you won't remember them anyway. That's okay. But they had some pretty amazing things to say. Some pretty amazing things to say about the Bible and about God. And you know what? They're like a guide to us. They're not the same as the Bible. Now make no mistake. The Bible's here, and they're like, here. But a guide is someone who knows the terrain, right? A guide is someone who has been there and we seek to learn from them. We seek to learn their interpretive way of the Bible and their way of thinking about different issues and complexities. And and so what we say is this is what we want to be rooted within us as part of our discipleship journey with Jesus. We literally call it a pillar, one of five pillars that serve as the foundation of what it looks like to be a living disciple of Jesus in the 21st century. And so, we chase it with this final sentence. I, Covenant to deepen my understanding of these teachings. Master them, I hope, but no. Memorize them, go for it, but no, to be on a constant quest of going. When it comes to God, there's always something new to discover a deeper richness of who he is and what he's like. Not that it will often radically turn you on your head, though sometimes it may, but bringing you to deeper insight or clearer vision of what he's like. We want to deepen our understanding of these teachings and not just affirm them, but continually reaffirm them as the governing source of my life and my worldview. See, guys, it might just look like some words someone put together because they're supposed to be a vision statement in a church somewhere. But if that's all it is, it's missing it. For us, it's something more. If you ask yourself, what does it mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a disciple? What we're attempting to do by these five pillars is give you something you can plant your feet in. Summaries, if you will. Because if you don't have the New Testament memorized and you are not walking completely lockstep with the Spirit of God, then you're going to need some kind of mnemonic or some kind of device to help guide you on the way. And that's what we hope these do for you. These words like reconnect and reaffirm and restart and reignite. You get the fifth next week. It's what we're about here at fellowship of faith. It's what we're hoping you're about to and hopefully you're seeing something through this pillar that this thing right here is very important and critical in your walk with Christ. Christians like to talk a lot about the heart. In fact, I really only find two groups of people that talk about the heart. Christians and sappy 80s love songs. Right? What's Total Eclipse of the Heart? Who's the artist on that? I don't know, but I got it in my head now. Talk about that earworm there. No one else talks about the heart. Maybe a cardiologist, but not in the same way. Christians, man, they love to talk about the heart. I grew up in the 80s formative years for me. And I remember there was like this, this teaching new this evangelistic thing that they would do back then where they would say there's only 18 inches of difference between your salvation and your damnation. And you know what they were talking about? The roughly 18 inches from your brain to your heart. The idea, of course, being that you can know all the right answers about God, that you can know things about God. Shoot, James says, even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. But if all you have is knowledge about God, without God in your heart, without that being a factor in it, well, that, they would say, was the difference between salvation And damnation because knowledge of God alone is never enough and I would wholeheartedly agree there's something very powerful and something very meaningful that they were trying to say in that that I think is good to hear in every generation because it's easily forgotten by people who come to churches every single Sunday and know what the gospel is know the books of the Bible know all the right answers about Jesus and think that because they have the knowledge up here and could get an A on a test if it was given to them, that that is the same as saving faith. And it's not. I love what Deuteronomy 6.4 says. Deuteronomy 6.4, by the way, a passage you should memorize, an anchor passage of the Old Testament and the Jewish people to this day, not to mention Christian people. And I want to share it with you today. And, you know, and I think I need to do it this way. I need I need to get you on your feet again because we're we're gonna do whack a mole day, all right? Yeah, I know, I know, I know, but you're gonna like it, or at least fake it. There's a Bible teacher that I really want you to know. His name is Ray Vanderland. He's been very, very formative in my own understanding of the Bible and and how to interpret it. Ray Vanderland is a Bible teacher of an evangelical tradition in Western Michigan. He, with a name like Vanderland, you might guess the you know, ethnicity here, he's Dutch. But his family back in World War II in the Netherlands had a history, had a history of bringing Jews out in Nazi-controlled Netherlands on their own underground highway of sorts or underground railroad, if you will. And so it's always formed a, a central part in the Vanderland family. Well, Ray is interesting because... As an evangelical pastor and scholar, he trained in the Jewish yeshivas under rabbis, which is basically like a Jewish seminary and is completely steeped and enriched in the Jewish perspective of the Bible, including the New Testament. This stuff is great. Watch it sometime. And he does this thing whenever he gives a talk that I'm going to do with you today. And he say, whenever Jews would come together... And they do this to this day, to hear the word of God, to listen to the word of God, to proclaim the word of God, to talk about the word of God, or pray about the word of God. They would first stand up and make a sort of proclamation, if you will, or commitment. And it is called the great Shema. Say Shema. Shema. It is a Hebrew word that means hear, but not so much like, yeah, I heard like the construction workers out today and it was way too early. No, it has a, a deeper connotation of something like, listen, Listen. And by extension, of course, obey. And they call it the Great Shema because the word Shema factors in. And it sounds like this. Let me say it in English first, all right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, or Yahweh. Hear, our, hear O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. All right? Shema, Yisrael. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. That's how you would say it, but do you hear how it starts? Shema. Shema. Give me a Shema. Shema. Give me an Israel. Israel. Give me a Shema, Israel. Israel. Give me a Yahweh. Yahweh. What do you think Yahweh means? Yahweh. (laughs) It's his name. Yeah, God's title. It doesn't mean God, it means Yahweh. It's his name, Yahweh. So hear, O Israel, Yahweh. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu. Let me slow down there. Have you ever heard the term Elohim? Yes. All right? Anyone in name of Grant fan? Steve is. It means God. It's the title for God, and you put an anu on the end, and it means our God. So we've got Shema Yisrael, Shema. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh, Eloheinu. Yahweh. Yahweh. Echad. 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 It means one, like the number one, but by meaning number one, it can extend to mean something like this, solitaire, alone, unique. What's the meaning of this phrase, Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Echad? Hear O Israel, listen O Israel, obey O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one? Like a monotheism kind of thing. Hero Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh. Alone? He alone should be your God. Hero Israel. Yahweh our God, one God. Maybe it's all of them and even more, dripping and rich. And when they would gather together to hear the word of God, they would stand to say it much like you would stand to say the Pledge of Allegiance, because there was no thought that you would sit on your butt when the word of God was being spoken, because that's how you would honor it, and that's how important it is. I remember the NFL getting itself into trouble several years ago because during the national anthem, they would take a knee in protest to something that that represented. But for Israel to proclaim Yahweh, to hear his word, they would stand in solidarity on their feet and say it in English with me. Hear, O Israel. Say it in English with me. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. Or however you put it. You can go ahead and have a seat. Now hear these next words as you sit down. And you shall... Love Yahweh your God with what? All your, all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Christians love to talk about the heart. It's embedded there in the Ben Rock passages of the Bible. It would seem that Christianity is a heart oriented religion and understood correctly i can go with you except for the fact that i have seen so much misunderstanding about what the heart actually means when the bible uses the term i'm going to show you a brief video here this morning and i think it's going to speak more clearly into any of this than anything else I can do or say. So sit back, take a watch, and let your mind be blown about your heart. Let's roll it.
1: For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, Lev. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase a broken heart comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart or to have a heart of joy. So, the heart is the generator of physical life. It is also the center of your intellectual and emotional life, and there is more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So, David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They are called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it is like what Nathan said to David, Whatever's in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known Proverb, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Now, the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick. Who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your
0: God with all of your heart. So let me recap something here, in case you missed it. Every time you come across the word heart in the Bible, you can substitute it with the word brain. Because if you missed it, in Hebrew thought, the heart was the seat of intellect. It was the generator of life, but with that, the entire essence of being, the seat of your intellect, of your will, of your desires, and, of course, of your emotions, every time you come across the word heart, you can substitute the word brain. Because at least from 21st century medical observation, where do your thoughts come from? The blood pump? Or this gray matter? Where does your sense of personality, of will and drive and desire come from? From the blood pump? Or from this matter? Even cognitive psychology will tell you that your thoughts are primarily responsible for generating your feelings. Where do your feelings come from? From your left ventricle? Or from this Matter, Isn't that why psychopharmacology is more interested in medicines for the brain when it comes to feelings than cleaning up the plaque and doing bypass? Anytime you come across the word heart, you can substitute the word brain. Or maybe mind, if you will. And I bring this up because so often with this obsession with the heart within Christianity, I also see corresponding an anti-intellectual bend. That truth doesn't matter, that reality doesn't matter, that discovery doesn't matter, that knowing God pales in comparison to loving him with my heart. And I'm sorry, guys, that's just not biblical. And that's not what discipleship is about. And that, in fact, is why Jesus, even himself, changes the great Shema. Test me on it. Look it up. Luke 10, verse 27, where he says, in answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. And Jesus adds this, and all of your mind. You don't find that in Deuteronomy 6, not explicitly, but you do if you understand how Hebrew uses the term heart. And in his day and age, 1,400 years past Moses, coming out of Greek philosophical tradition, and I won't go down this rabbit hole, where different understandings of the mind are taking place, no, love your God, not just with what you consider this to be, but with this as well. Oh, guys, explode this on your discipleship scene. Let me share with you just a, a, a quick splattering of passages that are piggybacking on this. I think of this in Philippians 1:9, where Paul writes to this church, do you want to know what my prayer is? Do you know what I'm praying before God for you? It's this, that your love may abound more and more How? In knowledge, in depth of insight. I am praying that your love of God drives you to know him more. Why? Because it's there that you're able to discern what is best, not by what you feel. No, it's by knowing God that will help you know to discern what is best so that you can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that's just assumed for a disciple, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you want to know God's will? Do you want to be pure and blameless before him? Do you want the fruit of the spirit in your life? Paul writes, here's how you do it. I pray that your love abounds more in knowledge and depth of insight. How about this? Do not conform to the pattern of this age, Paul writes. No, be transformed. Do you want to be transformed? You don't have to answer out loud. You might be on the fence. But a disciple of Jesus does. How? By the renewing of this thing right here. Because it's then that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. How about this? Paul writes in Colossians, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through what? Wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, doing things like this, bearing fruit and every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And let's put the icing on the cake. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the kingdom of light, for he has rescued you from the dominion of darkness. He has brought you into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So get to know the guy who did. Ah, to know God, what he has to say, and to conform your life around it. This was the thirst of the people of God and of Jesus' disciples and what we're hoping for you today. It's strangely tucked in even to our very word repent. It comes from a a couple of Greek words etymologically and, and, and it basically could literally be boiled down to this from its etymological roots at least, a changing or turning of the mind. That to repent is to think differently. I thought one way, but now I'm going to think differently. And now because I think differently, my values are going to change. And now because my values are changing, my desires are going to change too. And now because my desires are changing, I may just actually live in a different way. It's like this. I used to drink myself into an oblivion. I mean, I didn't. We're going with examples here. You see which ones fit. I used to drink myself into an oblivion. But now, I want to be clear minded and sober as God would want. That's repentance, that's a changing of the mind. I used to want to punch people in the face but now i want to try to love them the way jesus loves them it's a changing of the mind on to sleep with lots of strange women or men if that's your persuasion but now i want to honor god with my sexuality It's a changing of the mind. I used to want to hide, go unnoticed, shave and soft petal that which I believe because I was so afraid of what others thought of me. But now, I'm more concerned with what God thinks of me. And it causes me to act differently. Do you see what I mean? It's a changing of a mind. This is not about reading the Bible for its own sake or getting some information as good as those practices are. It is about the transformation of what God wants to do in you through knowing him more that leads to a very different way of living. It is a holistic, comprehensive way of life, of conforming oneself to that which God reveals and has to say. God wants you to do it. God wants you to know it. It's why this aspect of discipleship is so important to us here at Fellowship of Faith. I want to share with you briefly now just a letter that I've come across that I think describes the process by which God does this work. It's written by a guy named Ted Kluck, and he entitles it, to my son regarding my hopes and dreams for him as they pertain to the church. There's a couple of pages here, so bear with me. But I think you'll like it and resonate it today. Today. Here's what he says. Dear Tristan, by the time you read this, it might be hip to like church again. Right now it isn't. But luckily for us, you're five. And for you, church is just another place with good toys, friends, and lots of space to run. You love church now. And you love it for many of the same reasons we love it. You get to see your friends there every week. And you know they're going to be there because their parents and we have committed to being there. You get goldfish crackers and juice there, while we get donuts and bad coffee. But the idea is the same. Friendships and relationships. You're getting to know people whom you'll hopefully know for a long time because you share a bond in Christ. There may very well be times in your life when you wonder why we're making you go to church. And let me just say now that we won't be doing it to make your life more difficult or because we want to be right or in charge. We'll be doing it because we love church ourselves. We want to honor God by worshiping him with other believers. And we care about your spiritual growth. And let me also say that when, we, when you get to be my age, you will understand. I understand now why Mimi and Poppy made me go to church all those years, and I'm glad that they did. There may very well be a long period in your life when you have an indifferent or maybe even hostile relationship with church. As I look back, the majority of my grade school years were spent in church drawing cars and football players. I wish I could have those Sundays back, but to be honest, I'm not even sure what I'd do with them if I did. I was probably indifferent. But I still got to sit through a lot of sermons, hear a lot of scripture, and sing a lot of songs, many which I remember to this day and have sung in my head while being wheeled into surgery, led into a boxing ring for sparring, or putting my hand in the AstroTurf in front of about a 600-pound defensive line. There's scripture and comfort in those songs. I sang them in a cold flat in Ukraine when I wasn't sure we'd be able to take you home. And I hurt more inside then than I'd ever hurt in my life. There may come a day when you look around your church and don't see very many people who look like you. Perhaps they're married and you're not. They may all have big families and you don't. You may think nobody in church votes like you do or thinks like you do. I encourage you to ask questions of those people. Get to know them. And then while they're still in church after all these years, listen carefully to their answers. I bet that very few of them would say things like obligation or because it's a vibrant discussion or to ask questions or, well, because we've always done it. People don't give up large portions of their lives for questions. People make counterintuitive decisions like going to church for truth and for a faith they'll take to the grave. I pray that one day you'll be able to ask your pastor about free will versus predestination. I hope that you'll ask him about the Trinity, about infant versus believer's baptism, not because these are things that divide, but because it will be evidence that you care about your faith and hold it dear. Nothing would make me happier, son. I pray that one day you'll be able to articulate what it is that you believe, not because you'll want to use it to win arguments, but because you'll be passionate about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of this good news, I pray that God will use you somehow. I pray that you'll always be kind, that you'll always have a heart for those less fortunate and will always be moved by the struggles of others. I pray that you'll be bold in professing your faith before men. I pray that you'll meet your friends in church. You know that I've met friends in a variety of crazy places boxing gyms, football fields, bars, coffee shops, workplaces. But you can always tell the majority of my real friends in life, the people who will be with me through good times and bad, they came from church. These are the people who pray for us and with whom we do life. It's a privilege. And along those lines, I want to tell you that the church is more than the soap opera that your mom and I make it. Doing life with people isn't always pretty. People don't always agree, and sometimes those disagreements can be unpleasant. You're not going to like everybody in your church. But my prayer for you and for us is that our shared commitment to Christ will overcome this too, and will grow in love and respect for everyone in our congregation. I pray that one day you'll profess your love for a special girl in front of a church full of your friends and those you worship with. I pray that you'll commit in front of these friends and God to lead her spiritually and that your young family will be a vibrant part of the body of Christ. Love her with all your heart like I've tried to love your mom. I pray that God would surround you with people who challenge you to die to yourself and your sins. And I pray that if I am that person at some point in your life, that our relationship would be strong enough to weather it. And I pray that your relationship with your wife will look a lot like the one that Mimi and Poppy had all these years. As I type this, they've been married 38 years and are still going strong, and the church has played a huge role in that. They've changed churches a few times over the years for a variety of reasons, but they've always been committed to a body. And that commitment, I'm convinced, is one reason that they're still happily married. Marriages like that just don't happen in our culture these days. I hope that at some point, you'll get a chance to experience the body of Christ through hard times. If there's one thing I've learned in my years of church involvement, it's that hard things happen to everybody. There's sin in the world. And as a result, our bodies are in a constant state of decay. Our lives are almost always, it seems, in turmoil. Nearly every family in our church has dealt with job losses, cancer, heart disease, marital discord, infertility, the death of a child, or a myriad of other tough circumstances. Through that, I've seen the body work in wonderful ways. I've seen people give sacrificially with their money and their time. I've been prayed with and prayed for. We've had scriptures show up in our mailbox every day for a month. I've had the privilege of trying to pray others through their hard times as well. I've seen great men crippled by disease. These were men who were the pictures of health, intellect, and athleticism in their, in their healthy years. But worshiping with them in sickness as their usefulness in this world wanes is a privilege Seeing them make me proud of our church. Seeing them makes me proud of our church and proud to know the Lord. Church isn't a magic pill you take that punches your ticket for heaven. It's not a glorified social country club you attend to be around people who talk, think, look, act like you. It's a place to go to each week to hear the word of God spoken, taught, and affirmed. It's a place to sing praises to our God, even if those songs do sometimes feel a bit awkward. It's a place to serve others. It's a place to be challenged. Sometimes you'll feel uncomfortable with these challenges because sometimes your life will need to change. This has been the case with me. It's about more than fundraising or networking or meeting a girl or even great things like serving the poor or reaching the community. I hope you'll always Know that the Christian life isn't about what you can do for God, but rather about what God did for you on the cross. If this message isn't central to your church, again, you may need to find a new one. But for now, enjoy your toys. Enjoy your Sunday school classes. And I'll try to do something with the piles of paper you bring home from them each week. Enjoy your friends and enjoy the knowledge you're acquiring about the Christ who lives in your heart, who revealed himself through scripture and about whom we can know things. It's only through Christ that I can do an even adequate job as your father. Love always. Dad. It's what we want for you. and what we understand the reaffirm process to be about. So here at FOF, we have something that we call the plus two. It's the idea that as important as a gathering like this is on Sunday, it will only take you so far in knowing God more and knowing others more and the transformative power that God will work through it. It's why we do things like this. Discipleship groups, and Wednesday night, and table dinners, and microgroups, and connect events, and fellowship groups, and workshops of various kinds. How are you gathering to reaffirm God as the governing source of your life and worldview? And where are you placing yourself to let his transformative knowledge take root? Today, as you leave this place, we're having what we call our ministry fair. It's just one way to help you. It's no substitute for that craving In pursuit of knowing God, but it can be a tool to help you. As you leave here today, don't leave a plus one Christian. Leave a plus two. On your chairs, you saw these cards. The various QR codes will lead you to our website listing myriad. Groups and gatherings every day of the week. Different topics and different places where Christians are gathering together the way that he wrote about to know God more and love God more and live God more as a disciple of Jesus. Don't rush out the door today. Take some time with this. Stop by the table. Ask questions Take a leap in one of these plus two gatherings this fall. If you're seeking to know Him, to love Him, and to have Him in your heart, that's it.